When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Hope you and yours, friends and family, nearest and dearest are all well, safe and healthy at the moment. I was going to say in these strange and unprecedented times, uh, you know, how long can we keep saying that? How long can we keep saying in this weird, surreal life we're all living at this moment in time? Hopefully not for too much longer because it will be over. But let's, you know, it's fucked up. It is a bit fucked up. I'm feeling like the whole thing is fucked up this week. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, we're all doing our bit. We're doing our best. But life is, you know, just a bit fucked up. I'm trying to get as many fucks in the opening uh, 60 seconds as I can. Maybe I can set a new record for fucks and fucked up and fuckity fucks. I don't know what the record is, so I don't know what I'm even talking about. But, you know, it's just sometimes you're trying to be zen about the whole things. Other times it occurs to you that it's just really, really, really fucked up. Can I say, if you're out there, if you're listening to this and you're one of the people who is keeping everything going... Uh, regardless of of what your role in this is, whether you're a healthcare professional, a doctor, a nurse, a cleaner in a hospital, making sure that everything is all right, if you're working in a shop or a supermarket or a post office or a bank or the things that we're all using right now, which are giving us some semblance of normality, thank you. Like, really, really thank you. I went to the supermarket today and the, the girl who was the, at the checkout You know, she was sitting there with with gloves on and with a mask on and she looked hot and she looked tired and she looked bothered and she looked worried. You know, the idea that maybe this is the person who's going to give it to me. Maybe that frozen pizza that they picked up in their hands is the thing that's going to transmit it to me. You know, you could see that she was sort of, you know, worn down by it, bothered by it, worried by it and, and everything else. So thank you to to everyone out there, whatever you're doing that is keeping things going for the rest of us as we, you know, try and sacrifice this little bit by staying indoors as much as possible. Thank you so much. And I hope that afterwards, I hope that when we get through this and the far side of it, you know, there's a bit of a reconciliation that we stop thinking about people who stack supermarket shelves and and drive buses and, you know, like janitors and people like that uh, who, who have been considered... So low-skilled workers or whatever it might be, all of a sudden, along with the, the experts, these are the ones that we're all leaning on and we're all counting on to, to allow the rest of us to live life as normally as we can possibly live it. And maybe we stop and think about how important they are and how, how much we need uh, people to do the jobs that they do and how maybe they deserve to be treated with more respect and, you know, paid better, perhaps. Certainly, at this moment in time, they should be getting danger money or or some kind of bonus 
you know, for the work that they're doing. They really do. I mean that. They deserve it. Because, you know, all of us are going around thinking, what the fuck is happening here? And if you're out walking on the street, for example, uh, we all know about the social distancing. Keep two meters apart. If you're on a narrow footpath, you know, people are being conscientious and they're stepping in. You know, like if you're about to pass by somebody, they might step into a driveway to allow you to pass so you don't have to step out onto a road. They're being very conscientious, and that's great. But they're also kind of thinking, Ugh, maybe maybe that guy has it. There's a sort of weird suspicion to the niceness, if you like. And I understand it because you're sort of aware of it yourself. Uh, how many people are doing this? When you pass by somebody, you sort of give them the look, you know, the sort of, mm, this is all a bit fucked, isn't it? Yeah. Hold your breath. You're holding your breath when you walk past people? I, I know I am. I see people do it as well. So it's fucked up and weird and strange. So, you know, think about the people who are doing their best and who are putting themselves, you know, at the front line of this, whether they're treating sick people or whether they're looking after us and making sure we've got groceries and bread and chicken and beer and all of those things. Think about them and give them the, the kudos and the, uh, the credit that they deserve for, for what they're doing right now. Today's show, uh, I think it's a good one. It's uh, a long chat between myself and Amy Lawrence. We talk a little bit about footballers and the pay issue that went on this week and the initiative that they set up, uh, Players Together, which is going to fund the NHS and NHS charities. A little bit about that, but I thought it might be interesting to talk to Amy about her, her career, her life as an Arsenal fan, and her career as a, a highly respected football journalist for The Observer, and now, of course, with the athletic, how she got started, uh, you know, what was her pathway to getting where she is now, and what's it like as an Arsenal fan working and writing about Arsenal, not exclusively, of course, but with the with the sort of access and the the position that she's been in to get the insight into things that happen at this club, the way they happen, uh, you know, uh, above and beyond what happens on the pitch, which is what we can all see. So uh, we had a good long chat about all that. So I hope you enjoy it uh you know make yourself a cup of tea or have a friday beer sure it's only 10 a.m but you know what are you gonna do or take the dog for a good long walk because this is a good conversation this is me and the always excellent amy lawrence Okay, now on the Arscast, delighted to welcome back somebody who's been with us many times before, and uh, it's it's good to talk to friendly voices in these times. So, Amy Lawrence, hello to you. Hi, Andrew. How are you going? I am... Difficult question these days. It is, think? isn't it? It is. You're trying to like think of a, a really uh, upbeat kind of an answer and say, yeah, look, it's fine, it's great, it's cool. But, you know, there are days where you go, this is actually a pain in the arse. And then there's, you know, at the back of your mind is... Well, I'm just being asked to kind of stay at home. It's not the the world's biggest sacrifice. But at the same time, you know, it would be nice just to, to get out and about. So, you know, I'm sort of fluctuating my way through it. How about you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, that's the thing that's weird. I think how are you is almost an unanswerable question at the moment because you feel like um, <laughs> unless you're actually in serious trouble, that any kind of complaint you have isn't justifiable yeah but having said that we're all human and we're all trying to live and it's you know relative to our own existences people have day-to-day -day concerns and worries and stresses and anxieties that are completely legitimate and i think you have to allow people to feel those things even if you don't think you can 
have a rant or have a moan because there are people doing incredibly um, traumatic things working mm. on the front line all over the world, really. And every time I try and chide myself and say, nope, don't go moaning about something completely innocuous, really, when uh, when there are people with genuine awful stuff going on. But yeah, as a, as a deep sort of answer to how are you, but fundamentally fine, thank you. That's good. You know, from a health point of view, you know, we're we're both good. So that's that's the main thing. And of course, like you say, there are people listening to this, I'm sure, who are working on the front lines and people who are experiencing the, the effects of this uh, thing on a very direct or even indirect level. So, you know, thoughts obviously with, with all of those uh, people. Yeah, just feel, the irony is you just want to give them a hug. <laughs> Anyone you see who's a, you know, a medic or a delivery worker or, you know, even the guys who came around to do the recycling the other day and, and pick up the bins, I was like, thank you so much, you know, like yeah. like almost melodramatically <laughs> thanking them. And, it, it is you know, a, you, a weird thing, isn't it? It, it? In terms of like the physical contact that you like we've always taken for granted on a day-to-day basis, whether it's shaking somebody's hand or, you know, I go up to my dad. My dad is is 83 and he's he's kind of high risk because he had a heart transplant a few years, well, 25 years ago. And he, you know, has a, a cancer situation going on. So, you know, he is at the top of the risk food chain and, and you go up and see him and keep him company and all that kind of stuff. But you can't give him a hug just to be on the safe side, you know. It is a really weird thing to, to to deal with. Again, it's a small complaint in the grand scheme of things, but but things that you do or have always taken uh, as part and parcel of normal life are, are not there anymore. Mm, yeah, we're all kind of experimenting, I think. Mm. And uh, I suppose it depends how long this thing goes on for, how adapted we get mm. to it. That's a different true. Lifestyle. Um, I'm not going to ask you any difficult questions about, you know, what you think football is going to be like or the impact of this on football, because, you know, as 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 the weeks go by, you know, the things that we thought were probably the case are going to turn out not to be the case. And, and we're just going to make strange predictions that probably won't come true. And, you know, your mind goes to to not dark places, but, you know, the longer it goes on, the more difficult it is to come back to what we perceive as normal until now. But but in the in the very short term this week we've seen footballers come together premier league footballers come together um having been in the spotlight very much in the public spotlight the last 5 or 6 days because of the money that they earn because of the wages that they earn and Matt Hancock the health secretary uh, spoke about you know footballers making a contribution etc cetera, etc cetera. um they have put together this initiative called Players Together in which a, a certain percentage of salaries from players who get on board with it are going to go to uh, NHS charities together. So it will support charities in various regions and localities and, and everything else. Um, how do you feel about the way football players have been put in the spotlight uh, at this moment in time, you know, we all know they earn a lot of money and they they have a, a nice lifestyle and, you know, it's not out of their financial capability to do something, but they're not the only ones. Well, I think that's the key. And like most people, whether you're a football fan or not, it was a bit discomforting to have this this suggestion that footballers who earn a certain amount of money are, sometime, are somehow more uh, culpable or or it's more is required of them than other people who mm. might earn similar amounts of money. And there's just a lack of logic there that I don't really get. And I think the other thing is that for the majority of individual footballers, um, 
you know, they're quite young often uh, and not necessarily that experienced in making big decisions in life, even in looking after their own affairs. A lot of yeah. them will have agents uh, or, or, or people who are um, whose job it is to help them out with their finances and look after their, you know, this incredible um, luck that some of them have to earn huge amounts of money for doing something everybody loves. But let's be honest, the majority of them, and indeed I think if it was you or I or anyone else, we'd be in the same boat. We're not experts in high finance, so you therefore would be seeking the advice of someone who is. Um, you're suddenly asking them to make massive decisions. You know, the majority of them in their day-to-day -day life a lot of things are taken care of them. You're just told when to turn up to training. There's routines. There's a manager who mm. is in charge of you and what you're doing. Um, there's agents and various uh, entourages to assist with all, this, all the other stuff that you're involved with. So suddenly say, say to some, I don't know, take Gabriel Martinelli, for example, who is still a teenager right yeah <laughs> living in another country um okay come on you know you must be doing this that and the other it's probably a little bit unfair to be uh suddenly laying all this uh, at football's feet um i'm really glad like everybody that they've come together and shown some unity um but you'd expect that of anybody who even when even if you're not earning gallons of money people coming together and doing what they can to help others who are less fortunate themselves in a period of global emergency. It's just should be normal yeah. at all levels. Um, so it's brilliant that footballers responded. Uh, you'd like to think that other industries might do the same. You'd like to think that perhaps they might need pressure to do the same, but mm. it, it, it should be, um, it should become the norm that we see across a lot of industry where there's a lot of money sloshing around yeah and further down the food chain those of us who can do something small whether it's looking in on a neighbor or helping out with shopping or um you know just trying to give moral support to people who might need it uh give if not that physical hug that sort of metaphorical or virtual hug to mm. someone who's out there on the front line um some of us will have friends who are working in in the NHS, I do, and it's this tiny thing, but just you think, am I bothering them by sending a text to see if they're all right? I, do, you know, you don't. It's that thing where you don't want to, you don't want to cause someone like another thing to do to text you and see yeah. if they're okay or something. But on the other hand, maybe getting a a text from a mate with some moral support is just a tiny weeny bit of help. I don't know. Maybe it's not, but I think we can all do stuff for the greater good. That's exactly it, isn't it? It's all, you know, like you say, it's relative to our to our own experiences, our own lives and what you're capable of doing and what you're, um, you know, what you're willing to do at a, a time like this is, is, you know, for us, I guess those are individual decisions. For footballers, you know, they've, not that they've been pushed into it, but, you know, they've been very much thrust into the public spotlight at a time when, um, you know, it's easy to sort of point fingers and say, because you earn this amount of money, you should do this. And it's sort of, you know, the discussion doesn't really take into account any of the complexities, you know, the contractual situations, the the obligations that, that footballers might feel to charities or good causes that they contribute to 
anyway. You know, I, I think, uh, you know, there's an idea that just because they earn a lot of money, they don't do good things. And I think we've seen, um, you know, a lot of footballers at Arsenal who, who do have a social conscience. And um, I don't just mean at Arsenal, but, you know, they don't have to go out and and sort of announce it every time they make a donation to charity or they don't have to, you know, ring a bell to tell people, you know, look how good I am, look at, look at what I'm doing. You know, there are so many uh, aspects to this particular situation that it's not it's not uh, just a case you can say, well, all footballers, because footballers are rich, should take a 30% pay cut and that money should go to NHS charities or it should go to, you know, staff at, at their clubs or whatever it might be. I mean, there are there are ways around it, but it's not it's just not as simple as that. No, you're, you're 100% right. And, you know, in any walk of life, there's a, I think part of you is about looking after your own and part of you is about looking after others. And it's right that football part of what it does at the top end is try to look after those lower down the food chain mm. and whether that be uh you know professional clubs who god knows how they're going to come out of this the other end or whether that be grassroots football of which there's thousands and thousands of people working in grassroots football um trying to bring through the next generation of kids and coaches and people running leagues and you know all of that is is on ice as well and these are people who still probably have to work out how to put food on the table and and look after themselves and their families so mm. you know i think it's a it's a, going to back to what, what we said really at the start which is just for people who can to help people who can't at the moment in whatever way you can do it however small or however great it's got to be the right thing to do mm. okay well look we're not going to delve any more deeply into that because um, I'm sure it's something that will play out across the media over the, the days and weeks and, and months ahead um, and, and we'll be living it as our football experience which is kind of weird because it's not really football but um, I, I wanted to talk to you um, about you which is you know uh, <laughs> sorry about this but I mean you've been you've you've um, been on this podcast many times going right back to the very start to when it began in 2006 and we've always sort of talked about Arsenal and what's going on at the club and blah 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 but we've never talked about you know your uh, your career as a journalist and, and as an Arsenal fan and and how it all began so let's do that let's go back in time Um <laughs> We don't have to go right to the very beginning, but that's. <laughs> but let me ask you because I don't even know the the origins of your Arsenal fandom. Well, uh, it's quite simple in the sense that it was my first game, and it happened to be my local team, which made it all the better. Mm. Um, but I actually grew up in a household where my dad and my brother are QPR fans, and. Um, wouldn't say it was particularly to do with the fact that I had a rebellious streak, but um, you know the chance to to maybe strike out was was always in there somewhere. But I was taken to a game by my best friend's father. Uh, I think at the age of six, um, in the late seventies, Arsenal against Nottingham Forest three nil, and my my friend's dad had uh, three season tickets in the West Upper and decided it was the right time to take his little girl and thought I'd better take a friend because um, in case she hated it or, sure. you know, it was going to just drive him mad and he wasn't going to be able to watch the game or wanted to go home early or whatever. And I was that friend. 
Um, so it was a stroke of immense fortune, really, because I got taken along to Highbury. And it was whenever I saw the my fever pitch came out, the moment that the um, they film him walking up the stairs and through the crowd and you kind of come almost out of the out of the shadows and into the light when you go through the the kind of rectangle that leads you into the actual stands and, mm. and you can see the sky and the grass and all the people and the, the, the stands around you. And it, it was like kind of classic, you know, being knocked over by sort of 10 tons of, of bricks. Like sure. just, I just felt almost being physically and emotionally whacked by this scene. Um, and I just thought, I love this. And I was six, so I didn't really know much about football, sure. uh, to be honest, at that point, because little girls weren't really supposed to be into football in the 70s. I don't know if uh, anybody can relate to that who's, who's younger, but I, uh, I, I decided I there and that, then yeah. Yeah, that uh, I, I just fell for football and I fell for Arsenal like like a uh, you know love at first sight thing. So were you, you know, as a, a kid growing up, were you just consuming all the same stuff like the the magazines and the, the, the annuals and all those kind of things. I was. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, I used to say to my, I went home and of course and said to my, my dad, oh, yeah, it's great. Can I go to football again? He said, sure, I'll take you to QPR. I was like, no, 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 no. You know, <laughs> so I used to pretty much go once a season to QPR against Arsenal at Loftus Road. Right. I was insistent on going to watch Arsenal. Um, and then if there was ever any kind of, family, friends or older people who went to Arsenal who could be persuaded to drag me along. I, I, I went with whoever would take me, basically, while I was younger, uh, until I was old enough to um, pretend that I was going to the cinema or going to a friend's house or something and jump on the 210 <laughs> with 10p and uh, uh, get on the bus to Finsbury Park, walk down St Thomas's Road until um, you saw the, the top of the North Bank pay couple of quid through the turnstile and go and stand in the middle of the North Bank, um, which I think I started to do when I was sort of around about 12 or 13. Um, and then you get to meet people and go with a few friends and the whole thing sort of mushrooms. Uh, yeah. And I, I was, I used to go to the library at school and they used to get the newspapers delivered. When it was library sessions, I would just sit and read the back pages of the newspapers and <laughs> I was very much in isolation, uh, for want of a better word, in those days. Nobody else was doing anything like that. It was That's just brilliant. me. Look, it was look my at the, thing. Look at that young woman. She's so interested in current affairs <laughs> and politics. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and of course, you know, cutting out league tables and just learning all the nerdy stuff. I mean, I was an absolute massive anorak, um, which I think was kind of important because the fact that people didn't believe that girls should be interested in football it felt like it was needed so that if you did get into a conversation about someone you could quite quickly sort of try and blind them with your knowledge <laughs> i mean was that so i chinned up really well sure. I, lo I loved learning about the club's history I, I bought books and to read up about herbert chapman in the 30s and the great players from those league winning sides and the stories of the 1927 cup final and you know or, or, all the stats and all the, you know, there obviously wasn't much video footage of the very older players, but I loved to learn about the history. Was that something you had to confront or deal with on a, 
a fairly regular basis the fact that you were a girl who was into football was that you kind of had to justify yourself or or a bit a bit uh, but I quite liked it it was again it was that slight <laughs> rebel streak so I would be the only girl on the bus whose brown uniform was adorned by a red and white scarf uh, and it was almost like you know people would make a comment and you'd think yeah yeah come on then try me um <laughs> I remember going on a, a school trip once to a natural history museum or, or a science museum or something, and we were all on the Piccadilly line. Um, yeah, like 40 teenage girls. Can you imagine how awful that was? <laughs> Poor teacher. And, uh, and there was a bloke sat opposite uh, who was obviously much older than us uh, who had an Arsenal badge on. Mm. And I think I probably had an Arsenal badge on my blazer or something like that. And you know, we, we struck up a conversation and they were, like, my friends were just gobsmacked, like talking to a strange man, you know, and we were just yakking about, you know, the game the other day or sure. whatever it might have been in that way that you do instantly connect with a fellow believer when you're a football fan. Yeah. Um, you've got that instant connection and point of contact. So I thought that was brilliant. I loved the fact that I would talk to anyone and everybody and, People didn't think that was necessarily the done thing in those days. Um, but I I just thought that the more people you met and the more people you connected with, even though superficially you'd think, well, what would this 14-year-old sort of slightly annoying teenage girl have in common with, you know, a, a 50-year-old uh, mm. banker or a window cleaner or a postman or a judge I mean yeah. you know or anything and I loved the way that in a football crowd all that stuff melts away and it's just you and the person next to you and you can hug and you can experience the you know moments of elation and the total frustrations exactly the same and that empathize with one another yeah. and you don't even have to know that person's name that's and true you don't yeah. even have to know anything about that person's life but you can maybe see them every week or every other week for years and always say hi and always say how you're doing and then hug and like be overjoyed celebrate a goal or whatever it's it is brilliant. yeah, yeah it's the random brilliant. strangeness of, of football or the connections that you make simply because you have this you know you're you're an arsenal fan i'm an arsenal fan therefore you know we can chat and talk until such time as you know one of us discovers we don't like the other whatever that might be but you know in in the stadium in the stadium um context as well just the you know the the elation of of a win or a goal at a key moment or whatever that is and just sort of turning around and you almost sort of look for the person who's looking for the biggest hug at times don't you you know it's just uh, yeah it's it's a it's a kind of magic it's a magical spark it's mm. fairy dust i love it mm. it's one of my favorite feelings that you can feel that kind of elation with strangers yeah so was journalism always what you wanted to do? Um, writing about Arsenal, was that something you envisaged doing for a living? Or, or what, was, what was your plan when you were sort of coming out of school, if you had one? I mean, I know some of us, some people have very defined plans about what they want to do, don't they? I want to be a doctor or an architect mm -hmm. or a pilot or whatever it is. And some of us just kind of skate through life and then discover okay this this is all right i'll do this um what was your feeling about um your career um when you were at that point or did you have I, one i uh i definitely didn't go through 
life thinking that it was my destiny to be a football writer, like mm. ever until it fell in my lap. Um, uh, I, when I left school, I kind of had two major passions, like probably quite a lot of people, football and music. Just yeah. Were the, were the things above all that that I adored. Um, and it was, if I had to, I always used to imagine if I was, you know, up against a wall with a gun at my head and someone said, you can only ever have musical football for the rest of your life, what would you do? And it was just too difficult. I think I would really fail that test mm. and the person with the gun would just get bored. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I studied music, so that was kind of probably the thing I was best at. And I... Um, can you play instruments? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> which, yeah. Which, you sounded very cagey there. Like what, the accordion or good ones? <laughs> <laughs> well, how do you define good ones? Um, I, I, I'd like to... I, put, I have to put myself in that bracket of jack of all trades and master of none. Right. I can do lo lots of bits of lots of instruments. Okay. I wouldn't say I'm... Um, What's your favourite? <sighs> percussion. Okay. Okay. Um, probably just. I love singing. Um, bass and oboe was my classical instrument of choice. Oboe. So there wow. You go. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. But uh, yeah. So um, anyway, <laughs> I. Uh, I didn't think I was ever going to be a professional musician, much as I loved it. I wasn't dedicated enough, um, and I certainly was didn't that see because a of in football. was that because of mm -hmm. football? Were you not dedicated to music enough because of football? Because you were doing stuff around going to games and all that kind of stuff, or was it just you know? No, nah, I think just, I was just you know yeah. enjoying student life. I don't think it was specifically right okay. to do with <laughs> with that. But I do remember I was studying music at uni and um, having some. Uh, exams or something coming up with with regards to singing and sort of going to the football terraces and thinking that I had to sing a certain way using my diaphragm otherwise I was going to wreck my voice I was how ridiculous <laughs> anyway it obviously didn't make much difference <laughs> I didn't end up <laughs> doing uh, doing too much um professional music but right. uh uh I did uh, I did help out on Oh my god! I can't believe I'm even going to say this out loud. Come on. Um, the the recording of the hot stuff Arsenal was it cup final song or I uh, yeah I remember the song. I don't know if oh, it was. I ended up being involved in kind of gathering some fans together to sing the sort of backing track fan sounds for that. Right at the studio. Okay. Bizarrely, but anyway, so... You're not in the video, though, no? <laughs> God, no. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, that was a bit of fun. Um, anyway, I uh, football football-wise, it was just... I threw myself into anything to do with football that I could. I slowly worked my way through the 92 um, when I was uh, a student, because in those days it was so cheap to go to football and... It, it was suddenly in a different part of the country and surrounded by fans of virtually every club you you'd think of. So somebody would turn around and go, oh, I'm a Derby fan. I'm going to go to the game at um, the baseball ground. Anyone want to come? And you'd like mm. write your name on a piece of paper and stick it on the notice board and people would meet up and go off to Derby against whoever or, or, or Rotherham or Bradford or, 
you know, um, Mansfield. I don't know. We went all over the place sure. in those days. So it was, I just kind of felt like I couldn't absorb enough football. Um, and I guess when I, by the time I got to to university, I was kind of known as the football girl quite quickly. <laughs> And uh, in fact, there were a few people, this is a bit embarrassing, that you'd, hear, you'd walk down the street and someone would go like, Oi, Arsenal, you know. Oh, really? If you, if you were known of sort of being a fan of a certain team or wearing their top or yeah, scarf yeah. or hat or whatever, it was a, if people didn't know each other's names, it was a kind of way of recognising one another. Right. Um, anyway, I'd started writing for the Gooner. Uh, Save the Gooner, by the way, anyone who uh, who feels that they can spare a few bob to keep an institution going um i started writing for them in the late 80s so were you did you pitch to them or did you just sort of yeah, do that thing I where did, you I, go and say look I, do you need someone to write for you that no kind of they thing? used to they used to be i read it avidly and they used to be a kind of almost a monthly appeal in in the uh fanzine saying anybody who wants to write for us we're for the fans by the fans open to anyone just send something in and mm you know, we'll consider it. It took me months to pluck up the courage to do it. Mostly because I didn't see a single female name in the Guna. Yeah. And I just felt, oh God, this is a bit embarrassing. And what if people laugh or... I felt like I needed to pluck up some courage to do so. And I very deliberately chose a game to write about that I thought no one in their right minds would want to write about. Arsenal lost at Oldham Athletic on the plastic pitch. In, oh yeah, might have been the League Cup three-one. Noel Quinn got the consolation, um, and I went home and thought that was terrible. I'll try and write about it. And lo and behold, sent it off. The next uh, issue of the Guna, there it was. I couldn't believe it. Wow, I was stunned. Uh, and I started to, you know, once I, once I was in, it, you know, uh, they they were very welcoming, and it was kind of part of the gang for a bit. So they were happy to encourage me to write a bit more. And then once I got to the university, there was um, uh, a guy who was running the university newspaper editing it, and they didn't have anyone to do the sport. And a sort of a friend of a friend of a friend said, there's this girl, you know, she's into football, and like I think she writes for a fanzine, like you should try and get a hold of her. So one day I had a kind of envelope from this bloke saying, you know, would you be interested in doing anything for the student newspaper mm. we needed someone to do sport so I thought oh, all right I'll give it a go okay and uh that was a brilliant experience and we had a load of fun um doing that and uh it was this was in Sheffield and Tony Curry I remember going arranging a trip to Sheffield United and we got shown around Bramall Lane with a bunch of students by uh, Tony Curry and there was a big painting of the 1936 Cup final, which was between Arsenal and Sheffield United on the wall. Yeah. And I said, oh, yeah, I know about that. And he looked at me like, <laughs> couldn't believe <laughs> Yeah, yeah. He said, oh, really? Well, what do you know about that? And I said, well, it's a 1936 Cup final, wasn't it? Arsenal, Sheffield United, Arsenal 1-1-0. And he kind of looked at me like, hmm? So um, <laughs> that was was great. We had a we had a fantastic time. And I, that gave me that that keenness, I think, to... That instead of just being a hobby, I thought I really love doing this. But I still didn't think for a moment that I would grow up to be a football writer. Not in my wildest dreams. So I mean, it's only after I'd done a series of mundane jobs for a couple of years uh, after studying, and just reached that point where I thought I really want to try and find something, anything yeah. that I can do that I like, 
that I enjoy, that I'm passionate about. So and um, yeah, so where did that breakthrough come from? Where, or where did that that there opportunity was an advert in the Guardian for uh, it was they, it's just a small little box saying uh, young new football writers required for you know whatever it is new new project, and it was four four two magazine uh, that hadn't started yet. They were putting together a team to launch, and I sent sent some weird letter off to them, um, and for some reason they must have thought there was something in there and I got an interview and I remember going into the interview and there there were uh, two guys to interview me and one we took straight cut to the chase you know who do you support and one was Man United and one was Tottenham and I was like well shall I just leave <laughs> but they um they gave me an incredible opportunity so I was there were six of us on the launch team for issue one of 442 in 1994 and uh I was one of them, which was remarkable because I didn't have any experience, really. I mean, I'd never been to journalism college. Um, I didn't have shorthand. I had no skills. I just had this head full of football and a heart full of enthusiasm. And uh, I'd done a bit of writing. And for whatever reason, I think they thought that there was some potential for... For something so, so I, got, I got lucky what were the first things that you were doing i mean were you doing interviews or features or or what was it well that was what was so brilliant about it is that it was because it was a small um uh, editorial team everybody had to do a bit of everything mm. and two of the two of the six were art the art director and the sort of photo editor so there was four of us really that we were responsible for all the words that's a so lot of everything words from yeah that's a lot of words from, Mm-hmm. Commissioning, mm. uh, writing, interviewing, news stories, Q and A's, big interviews, uh, big features, opinion pieces. Basically, we had the you know the chance to try our hand at, at everything. Um, so I owe four four two absolutely tons. Cause that it gives you such amazing yeah, way to learn on the job. Great experience, just isn't it? Yeah. But I do remember the first kind of big meeting we had sitting down there I thought what am I doing and uh, <laughs> we, we, we sat down and discussed the cover stories for like the first handful of issues so that we could all get cracking mm. and came to the conclusion that they sort of made a short list of what were the, the biggest names in English football at, at that period of time so it was Terry Venables who was England manager um, Ke- uh, Kenny Dalgleish who I think was Blackburn manager at the time um, Bobby Robson uh, Kevin Keegan, uh, I'm probably missing one or two, but it was that calibre of, of people. And then the editor, Paul Simpson, went round the room and said, right, OK, I'll do Dalgleish. Um, you know, you do this one, you do that one. And he said, Amy, you do Kevin Keegan. Right. I just felt like my stomach <laughs> fell out of my body. And I was a bit like, what do you mean you do Kevin Keegan? <laughs> like, it was like alien language. I, I, I just I, thought, how the hell do you start? This yeah. is like, uh, you know, to try and get hold of this guy and interview him when I'd never done anything like this before. I mean, I just so to sort of put in, con- in yeah, the deep end. To, to sort of put in context, you know, Kevin Keegan for, for uh, listeners who may obviously know him, but perhaps not know just how big a star he was. You know, uh, when, when we were growing up and when we were beginning to watch football, you know, he was the European player of the year twice in a row. Um, you know, he was a huge star at Liverpool. He moved to Germany to play football. Um, he just was absolutely uh, enormous, wasn't he, in, in English football? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and he, you know, he came back in this kind of blaze of 
romantic glory to Newcastle and mm. suddenly create this team where, you know, they were potentially going to win the league, which, you know, we, we all have our perceptions of of Newcastle at the moment and, and where they stand in the scheme of football, you know, a big historic team with a weighty history, but, you know, winning things has not come easily to them. So he made them, they were called the entertainers. They were, you know, he's a bit like Arsene Wenger, I suppose, of his time just turned up and just transformed the DNA and the, the style of the football club. And, um, you know, there was this wave of this kind of sort of tidal wave of enthusiasm and excitement about that they haven't had in their football in decades. And they, you know, they were really close to winning the league around about then. So how did you track him down and how nervous were you? Uh, well, this, this story didn't quite have that. It was, I suppose it was a tough lesson for... Um, okay. <laughs> for, for, for life as a football journalist, but I really struggled. And um, I uh, I ended up going up to Newcastle for a an event at Newquay Brown at the breweries where Keegan was going to be there. It's just like room full of hundreds of people at some corporate event and I managed to sidle up to sort of just about talking distance from him at some point during the day and um, grabbed my my 10 seconds uh, of to try and grab his attention and said hello Kevin my name's Amy Lawrence I write for 442 and it's a new football magazine because people didn't know who we were by yeah, then yeah, it was yeah. brand new and nobody even really had a clue and um, just wondering if there's any way, any time I'd be able to maybe come and do an interview with you. And he looked at me and he put his hand on my head and said, bless you, and turned around and walked away. What? No and, way. <laughs> so I didn't get the interview, but I did get blessed by Kevin Keegan. And I kind of thought that was a result. Oh, I don't um, know. How you, yeah, that, that seems a bit like, <laughs> seems just a touch patronising. <laughs> anyway, I ended up doing one of those classic write arounds and spoke to loads of people about him and it was okay, but you know, you you live and learn. I guess But I so. did get to go and see Bobby Robson in Porto and that was just hugely memorable. Wow. I spent the day with him and that was one of the my favourite ever interviews I've ever done. Was I mean, uh, you never hear anybody say a bad word about Bobby Robson. Um mm. I mean, was he just that nice? Was he the night you know, to, to be he that accommodating? He was immensely accommodating, and we had a we had a um, uh, a kind of pen pal fax relationship for a while, because in those days the means of communication, particularly internationally, mm. you know, sort of pre mobile phones, or that, was if you, especially if you wanted to get hold of someone like a manager, was you know was, was you faxed them. So I've sent up these faxes over, trying to introduce who we were in the magazine and what we were trying to do, and in an in depth, you know serious uh peas and it'd be great to come over and see his work in, in porto and, and he faxed back handwritten uh and you know not with a secretary or anything like yeah, nothing yeah. typed everything was handwritten and um we made this arrangement and he he invited me to to go and meet him in in, in portugal and uh we had an amazing day and what i remember was um when I, you know, there was this obligation when you're doing the kind of like the big piece, you know, we're covering the life and times off. You've got to talk about the hand of God goal, you know, yeah. you can't not. And I was racking my brains thinking, is there a way of asking that's not been asked five billion times before, you know, because it must be so boring for these people when everybody asks them the same question. About, mm. you know, suppose it's like if you're Michael Thomas, what, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody says, what was it like to score that goal at Anfield? Like, that. <laughs> What else is there to, you know, yeah. how can you ask it? So 
I got to the point in the interview and I almost like, you know, had to take a breath and thought, oh, here we go. Oh, I hope this doesn't bomb. And yeah. I asked him about it. And I swear to God, and this is why I love him. He talked to me about that moment as if no one had ever asked him ever in his life. It's brilliant. And that's why I thought yeah. what a special person he was because he looked me in the eye and his voice went dramatically quiet and he was staring into the distance like he was there. And it was so, he was so immersed in the retelling of that and how he felt about it. Yeah. Even though he must have done it a hundred million times before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had immense respect for, for to have that kind of generosity of spirit really. Oh. He was a star. Yeah. And um, when I got back to London and we sent him a copy of the magazine, I got a nice fax response of him saying, thank you, how much he enjoyed it. And one of the things I'd asked him was um, what he missed about England when uh, he, he was over there. And he said, HP sauce. <laughs> so I sent him a bottle of HP sauce <laughs> and uh, another love, a beautiful fax reply of thanks for the HP sauce came. Oh, uh, brilliant. I treasured that, but you know, the, the nature of fax paper is it fades yeah. really quickly. So yeah. I'm not sure that that ever is readable anymore. He, um, I, I'm not sure if this story is true or not. I choose to believe it's true because it's just such a, a great story. It's one of my favourite stories about Bobby Robson is that he's doing a book signing. And you know when you're sort of slightly distracted um, and you, you're you sort of writing, particularly if you're writing, if you're distracted, you might write the wrong word. <laughs> And he's doing this book signing and this guy comes up and he says, uh, you know, Bobby Robinson says, what's your name? And he says, it's uh, Alan, whatever it might be. And uh, he's signing the book to Alan. And uh, Alan is talking to Bobby Robinson. He says, oh, God, Bobby, you must be uh, must be tired. You must have, you know, signed lots of books. Bobby says, oh, God, yeah, yeah, hundreds and hundreds. So the guy uh, has his couple of minutes with, with Bobby Robson, takes his book and goes away and uh, opens it up when he gets away. And it says, to Alan, all the best, uh, you know, regards Bobby hundreds. Which, oh, <laughs> well, which I, I thought was brilliant. Uh, it's believable. And that, I, this is another story I cannot believe I'm going to say. And I might ask you to, <laughs> to pull this later, depending on how brave I'm feeling. But I, will, I once was but was uh, buying some plane tickets for a holiday or something like that. Mm. And you got to fill in all the various details and names and middle names and whatever, sure. passwords, all sorts of bits and bobs. And I think at the same time I was on a call to work. I must have been talking about something to do with Arsenal or the piece I was writing or whatever. Anyway, I didn't realise until I think it was about 48 hours before the flight and I went to go and do the check-in and print out the boarding passes that I'd actually booked an airplane ticket in the name of the first name of one of my sons, but the surname was Wenger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's exactly and the same thing. I looked at this thing and I thought, the hell's happened here, you know? And uh, it was a real struggle getting it changed. I had a many, I had a very deep conversation with EasyJet or whoever it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I can, I can empathise with Sir Bobby there. Yeah, they don't, they don't make that shit easy anyway. So you know. <laughs> <laughs> Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, 
so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So from 442 to The Guardian then? and Yeah, well, it was The Observer, actually. Yeah, of um, course, sorry. Yeah. In my case, because the, the, when Sunday papers were separated um, mm. and uh, their own entities, I was really lucky and got uh, got a chance to to try and do, do newspaper stuff. And that was tremendously exciting because, you know, you grow up reading these big newspapers. Of course, and, yeah. It's kind of mind-blowing. But... Um, it was also just a big challenge because because 442 was a monthly magazine the lead times were so much longer you didn't really have you had different deadline pressures you still had deadlines yeah. but you tended to have much longer time to do things whereas obviously turning something around in an instant for a newspaper is a completely different discipline so that was something that needed learning where well, where did you start there in terms of what you were doing was it match reports or was it features again yeah, or match was reports it... to start with and and then quite quickly it kind of evolved to doing um you know all the standard stuff that you would be doing for a newspaper so yeah. match reports features interviews press conferences um yeah, that was, uh, it all happened really, really fast. I started off just doing, you know, a couple of practice match reports to see mm. if I could do it. Terrifying. And then um, uh, got People think match reports are easy. From there. You know, I, I think there's a perception that you, know, you just sit there and you write, you know, what happened in a match. But, um, you know, you are a under- boring match report. Yeah, yeah, of course. Of course. But, I mean, what you have to deal with, of course, is, you know, the, the, the deadlines that you have and also, you know, the... the for example, you know, something happens late in the game, which changes mm. the entire narrative of, of what you're writing, perhaps. Um, so there is, a, there is a, a real pressure there, A, to produce something that's, you know, not boring, but also that captures, um, you know, the, the, the essence of the match, if you like. Yeah, I mean, I've always, always felt that what I love about match reports is, yes, you've got to put across the nuts and bolts of what happened, but if you can portray the energy and emotion of a game... And the context of of anything that makes it relevant, that's what really makes a, a match report something mm. you want to try and devour the next day or when you've already seen the game or already seen the highlights. Why is it people still want to read them sometimes? It's because you you want to hang on to that moment of how it felt, you know? Yeah. Um, football's about feelings. The reason we love it, the reason we miss it at the moment is, is it makes us feel stuff. And we feel stuff because we care about our clubs, but also... Because, you know, we, we were trying to believe in something um, that's going, you're signing up, you're, you're part of the clan. And, uh, I, you know, it's, you want to understand it all. You want to understand what yeah. it means. So uh, I always think kind of in a way that the least interesting bit of the match report is, is the technicalities of the nature of the pass between X and Y, which mm. created the, And that's the hardest bit to do, interestingly, because if you write lots and lots of match reports over the years... 
you know, most types of goals or repetitions of something you've already seen before. It's very unusual. You get something where you think I have never seen anything like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, For example, you know, Scorpion kick came up the other day in conversation and what people loved about it or Bergkamp's goal against Newcastle was it's like, you know, a a technical thing or a decision or something that you just don't see very often, original stuff. But the majority of it is not that original. The drama is ever-changing. Yeah. And that's what's interesting. Mm. Um, But, yeah, if you're at a game and, you know, you've got, you know you've got a fixed number of words um, to fill a fixed hole in the newspaper that is ready to go to print, particularly with evening games and so on, Uh, you know, and you want to make it sing and you want to make it good, you know that you've got to, it's like, it's kind of a a movable jigsaw puzzle. You know that if you write so many words at half time, you've got so many that you can do in the, in the second half and you've got to kind of gauge while it's going on, is this important enough to make your final cut? Yeah. But you don't want to leave yourself short because, you know, with 10 minutes to go, if you haven't written enough words, you can't have a great big white hole. So you kind of learn to smell the <laughs> evolution of a game. And sure. sometimes you get completely screwed because there's massive late drama that you haven't accounted for. But, you know, they... You get a couple of extra minutes for situations like that. Couple, um, yeah. <laughs> but I do remember. I mean, sometimes you sometimes even get these weird situations where the deadline is before the end of the game. So particularly with what people call the color pieces or the um, the, the, the 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 sidebars. So um, they often have slightly earlier deadlines. So they might say, "Okay, can you send your piece on eighty minutes?" And you're like, "What?" <laughs> but yeah. you sort of have to come up with something that you think is going to going to work whatever happens in the next um 10 minutes so that can be really really difficult i remember doing doing that piece for the france island cherry on rehan ball game and i had to file on 80 minutes and i knew i was going to have to file before the end and this was obviously you knew that this was a playoff and it was the second leg so whatever was the result one team is in and one team is out so yeah, filing anything that makes sense the next morning when you don't know who's gone through and who hasn't, if it's close, is impossible. Yeah, yeah. really challenging. And usually you have to play safe and just pick a topic that you think, okay, whatever happens, th- this bit can, you know, I won't look like a complete buffoon. Mm. Um, so I think I wrote about Trapattoni because you know who was the island manager at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For the first edition. Um, but I remember when the handball happened and just to make it even more challenging, we didn't have any TV monitors, so we didn't have any replays and we just didn't have a clue what was going on. It was absolute chaos. That's mad, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, when you think about what's available to everybody else at home and you're trying to, you're trying to write, you know, from a, a, I guess a balance standpoint about one of the you know, most controversial incidents in international football uh, mm. in the last number of years. So, yeah. Well, those are challenges I guess people don't think about or don't necessarily appreciate when they read stuff in the newspapers and think, well, why is this like this? You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know so it I is, mean, it's understandable from a reader's point of view, but without, you know, knowing how the business works, it might not make a lot of sense. Um, yeah. So... Uh, Writing for the Observer, you didn't, you know, only write about Arsenal, but obviously there was, you know, uh, a lot of Arsenal in in what you wrote. Um, as somebody who's a fan of the club, was was that ever something that 
became an issue um, in terms of how you approach the job or, or maybe how you were perceived as a journalist? Because I think most journalists kind of keep their um, mm. their supporting credentials under wraps um, mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. And it's not that you were sort of shouting it out there, but of course, I think most people were aware that that you were an Arsenal fan. It's a difficult thing to... Uh, to balance those two things because there's an immediate, you know, you know what football fans are like. Mm-hmm. Um, we all know what football fans are like. There's the slightest hint that somebody might be biased about something and we'll jump on it and say, well, that's why they're writing that thing. I don't agree with that in itself, but it's especially because she's an Arsenal fan and that's why she's mm-hmm. writing that kind of stuff. Was that something that you dealt with on a conscious level or was it always you know, just writing the best thing that you could from from the journalistic standpoint that allowed you to, I, I don't mean get through it, but but to sort of <laughs> be, become, yeah. let's face it, you know, a very respected voice in football journalism. Thank you. I, I'd say I wrestled with it for quite a long time, mm. honestly. Um, the Certainly in the early days where you don't want to make a mistake and you don't want to give anybody any... Uh, um, uh, any ammunition that they can use against yeah. you. Um, I was not too worried about what people thought of me and, you know, but I'm definitely going into the uh, um, early days of the, the press boxes, you know, they, they weren't, they weren't so used to having uh, women around and, you know, certainly some of the tabloid boys were, didn't think that it was particularly the best idea. So, I was quite. I was trying that's, quite hard. That's to very be, diplomatic. To be careful. That's very diplomatic. <laughs> but not everyone, I must say. But sure. um, and also, I really didn't care what people think. I have sure, to I say. get it. If people were kind of mean to your face, uh, it was generally. I'm pretty sure that stuff would go on behind someone's back, and what someone says behind your back, and you don't know about. What's the point of worrying about, really? But mm. um, you know, and of course, it probably might have been different in social media days, but there was no social media then, so you were only you could only really react to what happened in front of you. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, but yeah, I try. I try to just kind of keep my head down and do, you know, show that I could do a good job, do the best job I could. I only really cared about what my bosses thought, um, and they seemed to be, not, you know, behind me. So that was cool. And I, I think as far as the kind of like supporter journalist relationship goes, I tried really hard. I always had a season ticket. Uh, I still do. Mm. Um, and I sort of, I suppose, tried to split myself into two different personas when I was at football. I was either in my season ticket with my mates or I was in the press box working. And I could be a different version of myself in those two environments. Yeah. And I always used to feel that if I felt that I wasn't able to go in my season ticket and feel like a fan anymore, it's probably the time to jerk in the journalism. Because... Mm. That was the bit that was more important to me. Um, never quite got to that point. So luckily I've kind of sustained the two things for, for a few decades now. Yeah. But uh, I think I was, if anybody used to say, oh, you're an Arsenal fan this, or, you know, can you say something about being an Arsenal fan? I was really like, I can't do that. No, uh, I'll, I'll give you an opinion, but I just want to be perceived as, you know, a writer who covers Arsenal rather than publicly. I was really a bit, probably a bit paranoid about I, yeah. overtly actually coming out and saying, I, I, I do I remember. Fan. It took me a while yeah. to, to kind of 
get over that. I can remember with it. a couple of times in the early days on the podcast where... Yeah. <laughs> where we, oh, you go we and I go, no, 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 cut that. I can't yeah, say yeah, we. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, we, get a we, bit like... We cut out a few we's in the early days, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but I think it's, yeah, it's partly about just developing confidence in what you, in who you are and what you think about things. And sure. I've always tried to be fair in in my assessments and I think where I used to be most conscious of it if I'm totally honest it's not when I was writing about Arsenal but when I was writing about Tottenham of course yeah 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 that makes and sense yeah I think that you know the the um the the needle of the kind of fairness spectrum thing if anything it, it gravitated a bit too far the other way when I was writing about Tottenham because I felt like I I couldn't leave a single possibility of people is you know suggesting that i wasn't being fair or that i was biased yeah, yeah so yeah. i was probably nicer to them than than, <laughs> than maybe would have been someone else might have been yeah because i was a bit, i was quite self-conscious about that it's like when um you know a, f- a footballer of a certain club is accused you know when they become a pundit or something like that and and uh you know you have these it, it almost feels like a betrayal to fans of that club you know, if they criticise the club they used to play for and it's always a thing, well, they just want to show that they're, you know, impartial or whatever it is, you uh, know? It's, I think it's, I mean, I come from a fairly privileged position in in knowing a few of these guys, but yeah. when I see people have a go at Ian Wright or Alan Smith or Lee Dixon or whoever, I just think it's mental mm. um, in the sense that these are very, very good human beings, first and foremost, all of them. Um, just top people and they absolutely love Arsenal and care about Arsenal but they're doing a job and if doing a job means you have to be critical as well as being um, praiseworthy then that's the way it is yeah they're not cheerleaders no no not at all so um, you know doing the job that you you've been doing for um, these years and doing it at a time in Arsenal's history uh, in which there have been some amazing achievements by the football club, some amazing experiences, you know, for fans when you think about Anfield in 89, which, of course, um, you know, everyone knows about and people have seen the film and uh, read the books and, you know, the the league in 91, the, the European success in 94, uh, the Arsene Wenger years, the success of those things and your job, you know, as a journalist, covering um, lots of that, not all of it, obviously, but lots of it, you know, it must be, you know, for, for, a, for a fan as well to have enjoyed those things as a fan, but also had this kind of other perspective to it, this kind of, again, you use the word privilege. I don't know that that's quite the right word, but, but to, to have experienced it from, a different perspective from from most of us, you know, because of the connections that you have, because of the the access that you've had to players and to Arsene Wenger, uh, you know, through press conferences and and all those kind of things, which give you a maybe a deeper understanding, a deeper appreciation of of what's gone on. Um, you know, when you say you never thought it was going to be your job to write about football, um, it must feel great to have had those experiences with both your hats on, if you like. God, I'm the luckiest person out. I don't know what I did <laughs> to get this <laughs> luck, um, but I'm I, I I remind myself of it often. 
and with feeling. Um, I mean, there are times where you talk about having those kind of two hats and where it sort of collides, like, I don't know, on a successful day, um, particularly further back when it was easier to to be friendlier uh, with some of the guys, whether there's the players or the manager or whatever, but they knew where I was coming from. Mm. So if you sometimes, sometimes I would go into a press conference and, you know, I don't know, if it had been an amazing win away from home, somewhere like that, and Marlson comes in and just catches your eye and you can just see that little acknowledgement. And it's kind of nice for them to have, not a friendly face, but, sure. you know, look out into the crowd of, and see someone who who they know it mean you know, gets it. Um, oh, and it's like, what a buzz. Uh, or, you know, going into a mix zone and um, oh, I remember after the Sampdoria semi-final in 95, um, uh, it, it, Ian Wright just came in and like literally picked me up off my feet and swung me around like a <laughs> child, you know, like his, he was so happy and he just saw someone else that he knew was going to be happy as well. And, you know, maybe those kind of things should, uh, you know, are not done if you're going to keep that professional uh, distance, if you like, between. Yeah. But it, you know, it's certainly in the older days, there was a bit more, I suppose, blurring of the lines. You, you, you know, people got on a lot better within the, me you know, certain areas of the media and people in the game. And yeah. that's much, 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 much more difficult now. So you couldn't replicate those. But I'm very grateful for those times where it was a big moment and you thought, oh my God, I'm like, if you imagine any fan, all they'd want to do is shake the hand or pat the back or say well done to yeah. a player or you know a, 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 a manager or whatever and you go up you're able to go and shake hands and say congratulations or yeah have a hug with with someone who's done something heroic for the club it's it's amazing yeah so i know i've taken up a lot of your time so i just want to ask you you know you you talked about um the position that you had in the press box uh, in that there weren't many women there and there still aren't really. Mm. Um, what, what advice would you give to any young woman uh, listening to this who might consider a career in football journalism? I mean, is there anything specific you would say to them? Um, is there anything that they can do to sort of... It, it still feels like there's a kind of a bridge or a, a barrier, doesn't there, in many ways, in, in terms of, you know... I think much less so. M think, much less, think, for sure, but it's still I there. Part, I think, yeah, I think it's more noticeable just in pure written form. But mm. I think when you look at the sports media overall, there is a, you know, there have been a huge increase in... Um, in women taking part in in the media across TV and radio and mm. uh, and, and, all, and all the other kind of me media aspects. So I do feel like there are more opportunities out there for anybody, actually. I wouldn't just address this to, uh, you know, a, a girl who would love to work in, in that football media, but even a boy as well who's growing up thinking that's really what I want to do. It's not an easy industry to break into, obviously, because loads of people want to do it. Um but I, I can only go back to the um, the things that I did because it's sort of a in a way it's a different industry. When I came in, there were so many fewer jobs in this, but it's become massive because the game has globalized and just become so enormous in the social consciousness across everything we do, which takes us back to what we talked about at the very beginning of this podcast in terms of footballers are suddenly being looked at as examples to 
lead the way in individuals uh, doing something for the, 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 the NHS and for the, the fight against this disease um, instead of any other industry. You yeah. know, somehow footballers are in this kind of status uh, because the game is so massive and everybody knows about it and everybody knows, uh, you know, footballers are much more household names than they might have been across the country. You know, either you were a football fan or you weren't in the in the 80s, 70s and 80s. And if you weren't, you probably didn't really know that much about, you know, anyone outside of someone like George Best and those real names that uh, transcended um, kind of everything and everyone. Mm. But nowadays, I think there's so many, much more of where football transcends uh, and is in the social consciousness. So it's it's a it's a, a much 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 bigger industry. Just think about Arsenal and the fact that they employ what round about eight hundred people um, at the moment, whereas back in the seventies and eighties they probably employed about forty or fifty. Yeah. I mean, and you multiply that across football, it's just giant now. So there are opportunities to work in all sorts of um, avenues across the game. But I think the things that are most critical uh, to help you get a, a, a look in are know your subject, be enthusiastic, be lucky. Um, it sounds <laughs> daft, but, you know, these things are, are important. And just practice, practice whatever it is that you like doing, whether it's writing, whether it's podcasting, whether it's, um, you know, something else. You can do it on your own these days. You can watch mm. a game and you can sit down and write about it or, or talk about it or sure. do a vlog or whatever. Just keep doing stuff. And when you're watching other people's stuff or reading other people's stuff, if you like it, ask yourself why. What are they doing that you like? Why is it that we've all watched the same game and the Ask Blogs piece the next day was the one that spoke to you? What was it that you did that made you think, I love that? Why did he use that introduction that was kind of out there and a bit <laughs> surreal and other people didn't? Yeah. You know, and is that the thing that you liked about it? And therefore, is that something you might do? Um, try and, if you're trying to develop your own style, the best way to do that is just by watching, looking, reading and learning from others and analysing, analysing why something's good or why it speaks to you. Mm. And and just practice and just try and immerse yourself as much as you can in in your in your your speciality in what it is that you love. Mm. I, yeah, I mean, I always say to people, you know, when when they ask, you know, how do I start a blog or should I start? I always go, just start and start writing. The sooner you <laughs> yeah. write, you know, the the the, mm. the better you're going to get at it. But the one thing I've always said is like, be honest in what you write because. You know, you can always stand over what you, you say or you write if it's what you think at the time rather than sort of saying, well, I'm going to write this because I think that's what people want to hear or whatever it might be. It doesn't mean you're not going to get things wrong because you will, but at least you can sort of go back and you can look, on, look at it and say, well, that's I felt like that at the time because, you know, that's that's just the way I felt. So that's another key part. But I think you're right. Just start doing it start doing it you know the mediums are there and the, the the equipment is there the technology is there for anybody to build their their platform or their portfolio or, or whatever it might be and who knows maybe the gooner are looking for some people to write for them you never know exactly exactly you never know check it out amy Do it's it. been uh this has been great i've really enjoyed the conversation um thank you for your time stay well stay healthy and have a big virtual hug from me Oh, likewise. Big one. Can't wait for a real one. All right. Get everyone. It's going to be amazing when everybody's back out there 
at football, just hugging you know, strangers, doing what we love, <laughs> hugging strangers. Bring it on. Not yet, though. Not yet. <laughs> Thanks, Amy. Stay safe. <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. There you go. That was Amy Lawrence, football journalist, oboe maestro. Who knew? Uh, thank you very much to Amy. Uh, it was a really great chat. You know, it's strange when you've known somebody for many years and you've never really had that kind of a conversation with them. You find out stuff about them and uh, their uh, their hidden talents, I guess. Their their obvious talents are on display. Not too dissimilar from the conversation I had with Philippe Auclair last week, which you can uh, listen to if you're an Arsbog member on Patreon. Uh, Philippe talks about his life as a, a journalist in football, but also in music as well. So you can check that out if you're an Arsbog member on Patreon. Also on Patreon, a a waffle podcast this week between myself and James, the one in which we talk about anything and everything, which isn't Arsenal, which is kind of like every podcast now. But hey, what can you do? You can find that on our Patreon page as well. And a little bit today after the music is, um, is a clip from a live show. We were reminded of it during that waffle podcast. Uh, so I'm going to use that as the bit after the music in which uh, Stuart McFarlane, one of the uh, club's photographers, uh, is asked a question about the weirdest Arsenal photo shoot he's had to do and recalls an episode at the house of Emmanuel Ibue. So you can find that after the music uh, where the bit normally is at the end of, of every single Arscast. So look, thank you as ever, for listening. Thank you for your continued support. Thanks for reading the blog. Please stay well, stay healthy, uh, do your best to do your bit for everybody else. We're keeping things going uh, as much as we possibly can um, to keep you entertained, to keep your mind off everything else, to give you a bit of distraction. So, you know, it's uh, it's good to be able to do it because it's, uh, you know, it's a bit of normality in my life as well to do the things I've I've always done just, you know, without Arsenal. But we'll get there. We'll get there, I'm sure. Uh, Quite when, I don't know. But look, in the meantime, have yourselves a great weekend. James and I will be here on Monday with an Arsecast Extra. So until then, please take it easy. Cheers. Bye-bye. Hi, this is a question for Stuart. Uh, my name's Alex. And what's the weirdest photo shoot you've had to do for Arsenal? Not, not necessarily the worst, just the weirdest. The weirdest. Oh, I did one with, uh, I think, the 30 years of the community department. And they said to me, uh, come up with something that goes you know, sort of timely. So, so let's get Emmanuel Abui in a great big Afro wig with a... <laughs> and Nicholas Bentner with a, like a... You know, you might have seen the pictures. But other than that, I did, I had, I had 
two hours with Emmanuel Adibayor for the Arsenal magazine. I said, can you bring some couple of changes of clothes in? Clothes in, and he brought in his whole wardrobe. <laughs> I, spent, I spent four hours. So, Addy, yeah, that looks great. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Must have done 30 changes of clothes. Hats. Stuart, how do I look? Yeah, you look great, Addy. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. Pretty weird. Oh, no, and uh, I went to Emmanuel Bowie's house. <laughs> that's, that's a great start to any story. Why is everybody laughing? Which was... Uh, Stop there, Stuart. Can't get any better. Which is priceless. He, t- he turned... <laughs> the, door was w- the door was wide open, and he turned up in a full sort of Indian headdress. <laughs> and I said, are you all right? He said, yeah, yeah, I'm just on my computer. Don't, don't. <laughs> he said to me, don't look at the screen. <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.